Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliff. As we draw towards the end of what has been a turbulent and unprecedented year in the realm of private equity and beyond, we wanted to invite a guest onto the podcast who is an expert in PE market conditions and trends. Sam will be talking with DC Advisory CEO Richard Madden. Richard puts the deal flow of the past year into context and gives his predictions for 2021, highlighting the importance of M&A and how it can be managed effectively, the role of debt in future investments and the impact of the ever-looming changes to capital gains tax. With this being our last podcast of the year, we wanted to bring you something that was equal parts reflection and future planning, encouraging you to remember the lessons learned from a year we'd rather forget and to look into the future with a renewed sense of optimism and energy. Now over to Sam and Richard. Okay, so today we're joined by Richard Madden. Richard is UK CEO of DC Advisory, uh, an international investment bank who work very extensively in UK private equity in both the sell and buy side, but also in M&A and uh, debt restructuring advisory. Uh, recent deals include uh, the sale of Maple Co on behalf of management and shareholders uh, who, uh, who were OMAs and Ontario Teachers Fund to Equitex. Uh, also, they recently advised inflection on their investment to Fenner Group and LDC on their investment in Acre Systems. In November, they really helped us out uh, in uh, producing our digital summit. Uh, and we thought it would be really interesting to follow that summit up with a podcast with Richard and DC, uh, specifically on the state of the exit and investment market uh, or market conditions, which I know many of my CEO members are very interested in as they steer their businesses into 2021. So thanks for joining us, Richard. It's a pleasure. Cheers, Sam. So as, as a first, I suppose the first obvious question, I mean, we, everyone saw deal flow sort of completely drop off a cliff uh, in April, May, June, but really interest, interesting to see how or hear how it's recovered in the last few months. And then even more interested to hear uh, about your expectations specifically around private equity exits and private equity investing into all of 2021. Sam, that's a very big question uh, with lots of potential answers. So um, if you think about it, essentially that the whole market went into hibernation um, and therefore things stopped. And what happened was, um, the first transactions to come out of that hibernation were essentially um, those transactions that had real momentum before we started. And so the early part of the year was transactions that probably should have happened last year or pre-lockdown, um, but didn't. Um, and so those started trickling through into the summer, but people didn't really feel sufficiently bold to start anything new. The next phase then was those businesses that are sort of safe havens for investor capital, um, and that tended to be infrastructure. So the next to wake from hibernation were the infrastructure investors investing into businesses that, that almost by definition are resilient and have very clear future cash flows. So that was it for a while. And then over the summer, what happened was a series of businesses started performing really well. Um, probably driven by sector or significantly driven by sector, 
So some health services, some food, but probably most dramatically, the tech sector. So businesses in the tech sector did well through the downturn, demonstrated that they had strong cash flow and good forward visibility. And it was kind of obvious that they were prime private equity investment vehicles. And so what we've seen since September, October is a very significant acceleration of the number of tech businesses, particularly those that are digital natives or have a huge SaaS component to their proposition, trading really well, really quickly, and with really, really strong investor enthusiasm. Okay. And high multiples? Uh, yes. Yes, very high multiples. Um, interestingly, though, Sam, the bar is quite high. So if you are a business that is genuinely great, has performed really well, then multiples are higher, I think, than they've ever been. But the definition of genuinely great and performed really well is a difficult one to match. And so we've actually seen quite a lot of people come to market with businesses that are good, good to very good, but they're not quite good enough to achieve those multiples. And therefore, there's a risk that those are disappointing the vendor um, somewhat and not finding the same kind of investor support that the truly great businesses are achieving. What makes them great? What makes a great business great at the moment? Um, so let, let's stick with tech because it's, it's, it's the largest and most significant element. Um, firstly, it is they have to have done well during the difficult period. So that screens out quite a lot of the market. What they then have to be able to do is to demonstrate that the revenue that they've been generating is not just a one-off driven by the downturn, but actually is a longer-term structural shift um, and that they can retain all of their existing clients. That makes them very good, very investable. What makes them great is that on top of that, they've got real market growth that they are tapping into. And so they've got that incredible conversation combination of deep resilience as well as exciting growth prospects and that's great mm -hmm. okay and then okay so that's that's interesting in terms of where we are i mean what it, it feels it feels like things are improving but it still feels as if uh it's a great yeah. unknown in 2021 doesn't it i mean what what, what are you expecting? well before we get to 2021 yeah before we get to 2021 what i didn't say was actually that's a pretty small part of the market. Um, the vast preponderance of the market isn't like that. So at the bottom end, you've got those who unfortunately are in deep slumber. They're not coming out of hibernation anytime soon. Their end markets are really difficult. Frankly, with some of them, at, their very futures are at risk. Mm. And so um, you know, that's a tragedy for the people who work in those businesses and people who depend on them for their livelihood and really isn't an M&A story at all. It's a story of distress. What you've then got is a significant proportion of the market, and I'll make up a number, call it 60% of the normal M&A market across other areas of tech, business services, financial services, media, entertainment, industrials, etc. Across those sectors, there haven't been many transactions because even the businesses that have done well have been struggling to reach the levels of profitability or cash generation that they enjoyed last year. So they've gone backwards a bit, which looks like actually a triumphant performance from the management team, but it's not really a triumphant moment from which to start a sale process. 
And so there's a, there's a huge amount of stuff that just hasn't happened this year or transactions that haven't happened this year. And I can't see them happening anytime soon either. Because if you think about what happens before the owners feel confident of a sale process, they've got to have the business returning back to better performance, hopefully back to growth. And then they've got to have a period of time, call it six, nine months, to demonstrate that that's a deliverable, consistent return to growth. And then they can think about whether they want to transact. And so if I'm saying, and I'm making up numbers here, but if that is about 60% of the market, then it feels highly unlikely that any more than 40% of that is transactable within the next 12 to 18 months. And therefore, I think looking forward, it doesn't feel that that stirring part of the market will stir particularly aggressively. I think a significant part of it will just sit and wait. So I think we see for next year, the safe haven transactions will continue to happen. Um, the boom market transactions for really great businesses will continue to happen. But the okay businesses or even the good businesses probably won't happen for some time yet. And so I, I see very muted levels of m &A. So the market's going to be, in terms of number of transactions, is going to be significantly down on 2019, maybe maybe up on 2020, and that it's been such a quiet year in terms of UK PE. Yes, but, you know, um, it's 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 going to remain flat. So so really, it's it's if you're in a if you're in a strong recurring high growth tech company, then yes, next year may well be a fantastic year to to head towards an exit. Everybody else is more yeah. likely to be having to hold on for another at least 12 to 24 months before they can show a trajectory to, to, to get to an exit. Yeah, I think that, that, that's right. I mean, what I would say is it, we shouldn't get too locked up in it just being tech. It's more about the business models. So if, you are, if you're a, a services company that has got core underlying um, resilience in your model as well as growth, then the same applies to you. Um, so it's more about business model and sector. Tech's more of an example. Um, it is it is true that the preponderance of those businesses are in tech, but there are they exist across certain parts of industrials, certain parts of um, business services, and so it's not going to be entirely moribund, but it's not going to be very busy. So you know, this this it's been a big year for fundraising, hasn't it? Uh, private equity fundraising this year. There's even more money to deploy now than there was at the beginning of this year. So. What are, what are investors going to do with this? Are they going to be quite happy to sit and wait uh, for those businesses to recover? Are they going to be super competitive uh, on on the really strong, high performing, high growth businesses? I mean, what what's what are they going to do in the next twelve months if they haven't got many deals to do? Um, so they're going to breathe a hearty sigh of relief that they have actually got the money. Uh, is the first thing that they'll be doing. Um, the second thing they'll do is, I think, think back to um, 2009-10, when an awful lot of people didn't invest at all and therefore had kind of holes in their portfolio and therefore be, be keen to deploy capital. But they'll be keen and risk-averse um, because they don't want to look stupid. So there'll be qualified enthusiasm 
and therefore I do. And but everybody will want to be seen to have done something, and therefore, given the relatively thin supply of very high quality opportunities that will come through, those, you know, classic law of supply and demand, those will be more significantly competed than ever before. Um, so it'll be very. There'll be a small number of very high value transactions. But for the most part, people will have significant underinvested capital. But I think they will get, um, they will have a very understanding group of LPs with whom they've worked for many years who will not put undue pressure on them to invest. And I think you will, as you did last time, and as you are seeing now, actually, you will see fund extensions to ensure that people are not under pressure to invest irrationally. Multiple expectations for those really strong businesses should be high next year. I mean, they've already they've already gone through the roof, haven't they? I mean, a few of our members have been through. Yeah, I'm not sure they get much. I'm not sure they get much higher than this, Sam. Honestly, uh, I mean, this is extraordinary. Um, what what but, sort of multiples are you seeing? What what? So so if you, if you take software companies in in a good sector in a good market with good strong cash generation. Um, those used to be 13 times, they were EBITDA, they went through 15 during the course of the last year, they're now chatting to 20. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying everyone will happen at that level, um, but some have and some will. But, but, but again, because of the resilience and the, the combination of resilience and growth, it ought to be the case that um, there's, I think there's a fundamental re-education of market of the quality and, and value associated with that kind of resilience and growth. It, it's just a new, I think it's a little bit of a new normal. And you've seen certain funds who've believed that for many years. Someone like HG Capital has been investing behind that expensive but wonderful um, strategy for software for some time. Yeah. Do you think investors will, will now accept a lower return rate um, to get the money out the door? I mean, a two times... Two and a half times is sort of expectation, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, actually, because it isn't really the investors who get to guess on that, if you see what I mean. It's no. more the general managers who are making those decisions on their behalf. So they are sitting there saying, well, do I think that my investors would accept a lower return? And if they do, what does that mean for me? Because essentially, these are decisions taken now that, that, that play out over five to ten years. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think I think people will uh, it, it, LPs have made a very good, very consistent and very high return out of investing in private equity for a very long time. And therefore, I think naturally you can expect them to be supportive. That might be supportive of a fund extension that might be supportive of a slightly lower return, although the guy next door will always be promising more. Um, I, I just think there's a good relationship now where private equity general partners have demonstrated the long-standing value of the investments that they make and the long-standing value of the returns they therefore deliver. And therefore, I think it's a, generally a supportive and positive relationship. So um, one thing we're seeing as a, as a significant trend have been for the last three or four months is um, the keenness to... Um, to acquire the keenness to use M&A as an accelerator or a, a reigniter of growth 
to catch up back onto the business plan. A lot of our members will be doing this for the first time, actually acquiring. The, the, the super experienced CEOs will be ahead of the game in terms of the dynamic of investing and the investor's keenness to back M&A activity. And they'll understand where they need to go with that activity. But I mean, I thought what, we might, what, what might be quite interesting is just getting your perspective and your firm's perspective on uh, getting acquisitions right for private equity-backed portfolio companies. What advice would you give? You can see why private equity are keen to do it because it involves sometimes more capital, sometimes not if the business has the cash or the debt capacity. But it means that they don't have to reappraise a management team, a market, an opportunity. They've already done that for the original investment. And therefore, anything they do is already qualified by their own experience. And, and they're, they're backing a management team who they know and like. And therefore, if you think about them coming out of their investment uh, cave, those, those very high, reassuringly exciting businesses fit the bill, but just as much those that, that fall into a world that they really understand or a business that they really understand. Again, that massively reduces the risk profile and therefore it, it's on almost everybody's agenda. So that, that, that's the first point. The second point is, is the one of financial engineering that you hear them talk about so much, essentially the multiple arbitrage. So I'm going to sell you, Mr. Wonderful Company, in whom I've invested as a group for 15 times, and I can buy it eight times. Isn't that brilliant? Um, and the answer is, yes, it absolutely is. Um, because by the time you put the two together, you are solving for 15 times the combined amount. And so my advice is, do think about that. Don't think only about what the business is worth to you as a business, but think also about what it might be worth as part of your group. And that's a slightly different mindset that probably helps you be a little more decisive and uh, deliver, frankly, pay a little more than, than the number you first thought of. Um, because you've clearly then got the whole synergy conversation I think be cautious would be my advice on what synergies you think you can deliver. It's always better to over-deliver than under-deliver. And you do need to be mindful of the um, social and cultural impact of synergizing businesses. Uh, so I think that that second piece is more sensitive. I would say, though, it is important to do something around synergies and integration and combining operations, because that's part of the point. And when the next investor comes to acquire, be that a corporate or a private equity firm, they will expect you to have done something to improve the business that you've bought um, and to ensure that the, the financial performance is enhanced, not just through revenue growth. So I think it's, um, I think it's, a, it's a complex story, but worth one feeling very positive about. Because interestingly, if, if you think into perhaps the smaller end of the market or smaller end of the market for us sort of businesses from worth up to say 50 million, quite often those are founder owned. Um, and a lot of founders have found this period very tough um, because the business that they've spent so long building up has been materially damaged. Their working life has become materially more stressful and difficult. And then, one step further out is the threat of a change to the capital gains tax regime. 
And so there, there are a group of founders of businesses who are sitting there thinking, well, maybe now is the time. So you can ignore everything I said in the first 10 minutes of this interview um, when it comes to bolt-on, tuck-in, founder-owned businesses, because the dynamic is different. There are some traps that you can fall into, aren't there, as a CEO, um, in making these acquisitions or being knee-jerked into making acquisitions because the opportunity is ripe. It's got, they've got to be very careful in that they fit with their immediate yeah. and the term strategic plan. Don't, don't buy something because it, it might fit within the sector and be an interesting-looking deal. What does it actually deliver for you and your, your strategic plan in the next two to three years? No, no longer than that. Yes, and I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think that to do a deal because it's there is never the right answer. To do a deal because it makes the whole better than the sum of the parts has to be the answer. I think the biggest issue, though, is almost always um, what you do with the management team that you've acquired. Um, and I've, you know, people go from every end of the spectrum, cutting them into um, the group equity scheme, almost always the best way. Cutting them into an earnout for their own business almost always leads to conflict and difficulty. Or indeed, I know some people who are very keen to, no matter how good that founder management team is, to move them on very quickly. Um, because then you have the opportunity to to um, integrate more easily and to try to develop a single and cohesive group culture amongst the people in the business. And so there is no right answer, except that in my experience, the founders of businesses you've just bought, who have been used to running their own ship and creating value for themselves and not for somebody else, are difficult to deal with. Yeah, harder to integrate. But it, it can it can work, but you've just got to make sure that you've you've got a very well thought through process to get them out at you know at the right time for them. That earn out yeah. is a stage process where they can deliver value back into the bigger, you know, into the whole plan, into the yeah. into the whole business rather than just for themselves. No, that's absolutely right. And I think if you, if you do set the objectives right, and if they if they are properly shared objectives rather than those relating to the business that's just been acquired, then you've got a much better chance of making it work. Um, if, if you if you set up objectives that set up silos and conflict, then you'll end up paying out the full earnout just to make them go away. Yeah, the problems go away as well as the management team, which never feels. And then everyone's well, apart from the people who just received the money, but everyone else is annoyed and disappointed. Um, so you touched on capital gains tax there. We, here we are in December. <clears throat> Rishi has, has very much suggested something is going to be done. I think we're probably all expecting an increase in capital, ta- capital gains tax. So you yep. sort of mentioned what that's going to do between now and then. I mean, then probably being the end of March, April in the next budget. What happens after that, though? Because so much of private equity deal flow is dependent on entrepreneurs selling for the first time, isn't it? And if entrepreneurs are going to be demotivated from selling their businesses because they're going to have to pay an awful lot more tax on the exit, what's what's that going to do to deal flow? I, I think it puts a, a, a short to medium term break on deal flow as people get used to the fact that they're going to make less money than they hoped. The reality is at some point they'll have to wake up and realize that it isn't coming back anytime soon. And therefore, not selling is just waiting for Godot. 
Um, and, and it will take time, but that realisation will dawn. I mean, I think interesting for private equity, it'll, it'll be private equity carry that the, uh, the the government goes for, and absolutely rightly so. It's an outrage. <laughs> it's a politically sensitive uh, subject, but do you think? I mean, it's going to affect. It's going to affect. It's going to affect deal flow. It's going to affect uh, private equity. Their the firm's incentive plans themselves. Then it's also going to affect management team incentive plans, isn't it? Uh, it? It is, but I think people will get used to the idea um, that this is a change that's here for the medium to long term, and therefore there isn't a way round it. And in every circumstance, let's be clear, we're talking about taxing capital gains and the clues in the word gains. Mm. So this is taking more from people of money that they wouldn't otherwise have had if they didn't transact. So I, I think it will be a delay, but we'll get back to a, a, a similar level of activity. And people will sit there and say, well, the fact I had to pay 30% tax instead of 10% tax is extraordinarily irritating, but it's here to stay. It is what it is. We need to move on. Yeah. I, d- I just don't think uh, it's just not rational to sit and wait for it to come back when we're going to be we are going to be living in a country that has trillions of unaffordable debt and therefore the government needs any government of any hue needs to ensure that they get more tax receipts in the future than they've had in the past it's just inevitable yeah we have to um we have to lose sight of yesterday don't we and move on to tomorrow yeah i mean that's a, it's a very good phrase actually sam because because that's true of so many things and indeed when you think about that yet to stir group of businesses that I talked about earlier, at some point, people are going to have to recognize that they're not going to be able to sell it for the price they once hoped, once hoped they would and actually look at the new available price and say, well, is that sufficient? But it, experience tells me that it takes people ages to reach that disappointing conclusion. We've got a long way to go, haven't we? I mean, post global um, global financial crisis, you know, it took a couple of years for the sort of situation to settle down and for, um, and for people to really realise where where things stood and come to terms with the changes. Yeah, there was quite a big difference though, actually, because essentially in the great financial crisis, the kind of engine that was required for deal-making, um, essentially banks, lenders, supply of equity... Um, were all under threat. And therefore, a fundamental part of the M&A market was absent, as well as consumer confidence, business confidence, and all those other things. This time, that part of it, as in the supply of capital, both debt and equity, seems to be unchecked. And therefore, that break on the market will, is, will be removed much, has already, frankly, been removed. Um, and so I think um, the, the levels of activity then were deeply depressed because the market participants weren't participating. Mm-hmm. This time, I think the market participants will be participating with caveats, with concern and care and diligence, but but the market will remain open in a way that it wasn't then. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you're you're right. Um, well, it's all, you already proved to be right. So, I mean that that leads me on to my next question of what what are you seeing in in the debt markets? And the debt markets have have stayed 
pretty reasonable over the last 12 months. I mean, our CEO members are looking at the availability of, of debt uh, to, to fuel some of their uh, acquisitions. So I think people, CEOs in your community need to think more about debt than they did before um, because uh, the possibility of a refi essentially to help increase the potential future returns for the current investors, be they management or private equity, um, is very real. Um, and you can make meaningful acquisitions significantly funded by debt and therefore have a reduced draw on the equity and therefore a reduced draw on the returns for all of the shareholders. So I think debt is an important and probably more strategic part of value creation now than it was six, nine, 12 months away because you were always thinking, well, I'll, I'll just sell the business before I refi it. I think now refining the business as, as an option in advance of a sale to take some money off the table is, is a much more credible um, possibility or much more advisable, let's call it, um, possibility. And the debt markets are very much open. If you think about last time round, the market in the U, in, in UK mid-market private equity was dominated by the banks who were the self-same people who were in so much trouble. This time round, more than half of the lending is from funds. Um, and which is essentially the same as a private equity fund, only instead of being asked to invest in equity by their LPs, they're being asked to invest in debt. And so you've got a significant pool of capital that wants to put money to work, um, at, whereas the banks didn't want to last time. So it is very different. And again, on those businesses that are yet to stir, going back to the ones who, who are still in the cave, a lot of them are still generating significant cash flow, paying down debt, and, and therefore are very leverageable businesses. And so we think that the refi market will be particularly active over the next six to 12 months as businesses find their new level of cash generation and earnings and are able to demonstrate that that is resilient and credible and longstanding and therefore attractive to debt funds. So it's a very, it's a very different place. Yeah. We've we've um, we did it. We've done a few sessions recently with with our members, um, and a couple of the very experienced CEOs have, have used the debt funds uh, in a very interesting, innovative way in terms of bringing together multiple debt providers and packages on reasonable terms to fund their own buyouts, but their debt funded buyouts or and or their, their own MA activity. I mean some of the terms are very reasonable, aren't they? I mean may, maybe in some cases more attractive than a than a private equity deal. Definitely. Definitely. So if you are think of do, thinking of doing something um, and, and you want to keep control and you don't think it's the best time to sell, then the debt funds really are very open for business. And as you say, they are reasonable. It's interesting. A bit like the equity markets, um, pricing on debt is sits in a relatively narrow band for great businesses to 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 good businesses, and multiples remain high but not ludicrous. Um, what's interesting though is that the lending that isn't available is the kind of high risk, high return lending. So I'll give you a 15-20% coupon. Um, for, for in this high risk situation, even the debt funds. Going back to earlier, I said that the, the private equity funds were actually risk averse. Well, debt funds are paid to be risk averse, which once again means that although the bar 
for where they will invest is, is much lower than it is for private equity, it's still, it's still reasonably high. And therefore, if you've got something difficult, and we have some difficult debt refinancings on at the moment um, that are more stressed, that quickly resolves to quite a small pool of lenders quite quickly. You know, it, it, there aren't that many people in that market. Well, Richard, that's been really good. Really interesting. Thank you for, the, for your insights. You know, let's keep our fingers for 2020, fingers crossed for 2021 and, and some sort of return to reasonable activity levels. Yeah, I, I think, Sam, um, I, I've also enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Um, I think 2021 will be better than most of us feared um, and probably slightly better than most of us hoped, albeit it'll be well down on 2019. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.